0: Dave Pryor, welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today we're going to focus on more of a complex topic. I think it's a little more complex. Zach Stone is here. Zach, thank you for taking time out of
1: your Friday. Dave, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, this one's so complex, we actually practiced before we did this one. So, this <laughs> is going to be our round two, second iteration. Um, yeah, before we get, get it in- incrementally improved. Yes, exactly. And before we get into the topic, Zach, how would you describe the work that you do on your background? Because you have. The work might sound familiar, but the background is very might be a little bit varied for folks.
1: Okay. yeah it's, uh, it's a great question. so I started as a group facilitator. Um, I got trained in how groups and teams interact with one another uh, and how conflict occurs in those groups and how to resolve and transform that conflict back in 1999 by the American Friends uh, Service Committee, which was a group that was training people in behavioral health and how to create sustainable civil society, uh, and healthy communities. Okay. Um, and I really loved that work. It had a huge impact on my life and in understanding the conflicts in my own life that I was having with people, uh, how I interacted in groups, my body language, my voice tone, uh, how people perceive me. And I developed a real love for behavioral science. Um, and so I went and I, uh, Leverage that love of behavioral science by reading as many books about human behavior and how humans interacted, uh, and then I went and got some training and education. Continued training and education in behavioral science and behavioral analysis, and uh, that that has guided my career um, into organizational consulting, which I did for about eight years for a group called Red Kite Project. Uh, I worked in government and healthcare uh, with the military, with unions, a variety of different backgrounds, and then ended up in a financial technology firm. Okay. And so what kind of work are you doing now? So I am, I am an agile coach, uh, doing some scrum mastering, some agile coaching, uh, and a mix of organizational development, uh, work. Okay. So I have
0: two questions to kind of go back to what you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, the first was about the
1: American friends. Can you explain what that organization does? Yeah, so they, they do a lot of things, but they're an organization that works across the world to do education, training, and peace building, essentially. So they go into communities where war and genocide has occurred uh, or communities where there is extensive violence, and they help train people to do the work on the ground with individuals who have been through these very traumatic, challenging events and to help rebuild um, the society up around them, uh, okay. teaching and, people how to have dialogue and to be in healthy community with one another. Okay. And
0: it's a Quaker organization, right?
1: Yes, it is a Quaker okay. organization. Cool. That's correct. All right.
0: Now you use the word behavioral with a lot of other words when you were explaining your background. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about behavioral science, like I, that's something that I'm assuming people have like a vague concept of what it's about, but from your perspective, what, when you talk about behavioral science, what are you focusing on?
1: I think, you know, at a really basic level, it's why do people do the things that they do? Okay. And specifically when human beings get into relationship with one another, uh, why why do they have conflicts and how can they work through them in a constructive way? And okay. when they're working in groups or when they're at their workplace, uh, what is it that we can do to be as healthy and productive as possible in those workspaces? So it's okay. sort of this tri, uh, tri-fold approach to being human and uh, understanding why humans are the way they are. Okay.
0: And so the, the, the focus of what we're going to talk about today is all about a technique
1: that's part of that, motivational interviewing, right? That's correct. It's about helping people navigate through the sticky process of making changes in their life. Okay. So can
0: you give like a, a, before we start talking about how it would apply to maybe the workplace or agile, can you give like a simple, maybe not work related example of what that would be
1: or what what kind of change they want to make? Uh, Certainly. So, you know, the typical example that we talk about a lot in in motivational interviewing is because the studies that they used to create this technique originally were based off of this was uh, smoking, quitting smoking. And um, you know, you can't just walk up to someone or I guess I should say this. I would, I would dare someone to walk up to a smoker of 20 years and start listing off to them all the reasons why smoking is bad for them and why they should quit. And I'd be curious to see what outcome they would get if that person would then turn around and say, yeah, you're right. I should stop smoking. And you know what? I'm done with cigarettes today. I'm giving them up. I'm done. Um, that's,
0: that's always the thing that, that strikes me as weird about that conversation because the person who's walking up, it's like they think that the other person doesn't know. It's ridiculous. Like, I always wonder, what is the outcome that you're looking for in that situation? Like whatever it is you're telling somebody to stop, Like, what do you think is going to happen here?
1: Oh, well, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, I think, you know, whether it's asking someone to quit smoking or it's asking people to change the way they work, and how they interact with each other in the workspace, it's the same type of result frequently is, you know, you're just going up to people and saying, this is what you should be doing, now go do it. And often the outcome is, you know, people will either A, fake it till the, the person that's, the, you know, in their environment telling them, forcing them to do this leaves, or they ignore them outright and they just continue doing their old behaviors and their old habits. So, yeah, it's not, a, it's not an effective way to create change. Uh, and so part of why this motivational interviewing technique came about was because there was this recognition that, that just telling people what to do doesn't create change. You have to find other ways to ignite change inside of people.
0: Okay, so I want to ask you one more. I'm, I was just starting to write it down, but since this seems like an appropriate place, I'm going to ask you one more question before we go into this, sure. this process. When that occurs, when the person comes up and confronts another person with, don't you realize what that's doing? You know, manager mm-hmm. who keeps trying to inject work into a sprint, or a person who was, you know, chain smoking or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always wondering if the, if the request or the declaration of information or whatever it is, it seems to me almost like it's more about the person who's trying to cause change than it is about the person that they want to change.
1: Oh, that is an incredible point. Yes. And I, that's part of why I love this, uh, this, uh, the spirit behind motivational interviewing, because at its core, one of its main tenants is that the people that we're collaboratively working with are experts in their own lives. And so if this change is about you, um, you're, you're less likely to be able to affect that change. Then okay. if the change is a natural, naturally motivated desire coming from this person that you're trying to see the change in. And so a big part of this technique is finding the natural desires, the abilities, the reasons why they would change the needs for why they should change and help make those visible. Just like we make work visible um, as Agilists, we're making the reasons why they should make the shift more visible for them. And we're, we're helping them. We're helping them to do that. So can I try to dumb it down a little bit? Sure. So I come
0: in as a coach. And maybe when I come in, I tell everybody, this is how you're going to do Scrum. There was one guy I worked with who told me that he was going to make everyone do Scrum and it was his way or the highway. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go in that before. Yeah, enforce the policy. Or I could come in to that conversation with the idea that um, I'd like to help you find a way to find your own solution. And probably there is a part of me that wants that solution to be my solution. But I, I don't want to just force it on you. I want you to find your path to it.
1: And that's a much more sustainable way to get to change. Okay. I mean, research proven over 50 years, all the studies that they have done on how people make changes. This is the theme that has continued to emerge over and over again, is if you try to force change on people, they are very likely to reject it, uh, and not sustain it. But if you can evoke it, elicit it, bring it out of people, um, that they are much more likely to embrace change and then sustain it over a period of time and adopt those new habits and behaviors. So in the same way that
0: you would want people to be, have this like intrinsic motivation for work, you want to create, if I want somebody's behavior to change, like I'm going to admit that I have that one. Rather than telling them what to do, I want to try to create—you call it a spark—that spark within them that causes that causes them to want the change, uh, for, them, for for themselves, not to to appease me or make me go away, but because this is a motivating thing
1: for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, as, as agile coaches, um, as, as scrum masters, servant leaders, or you know, even working as MI practitioner, motivational interviewing practitioner, behavioralist, uh, we certainly have an idea of what we think would be beneficial for the people that we're working with. And we have some understanding and knowledge and, and, and expertise that we bring to the table, but we're certainly not experts in the life of that of those people that are doing the work day in and day out. And so to just come to them and say it's my way or the highway is, is sort of ludicrous on its face. I mean, what you what we really want to be striving for, at least from the research and what we've seen in the field that is successful, is to find out what it is that p- drives people that are doing this work uh, okay. and to, to bring it out of them. Okay. So how do you go about doing that? So it's a, that's a great question. And I think at the core uh, of what informs my approach to coaching and practicing agility is this quote that I, I'd love to share with you if I could. Absolutely. So uh, somewhere around 600 BC, Lao Tzu said, a leader is best when people barely know they exist. When their work is done, their aim fulfilled, the people will say, we did it ourselves. And I think at the core of that quote is this sentiment around empowerment and autonomy. And if we want to try to help to create an environment where people feel ownership, where there's a, a we're creating sustainable change, uh, folks have to feel like that change came from them and it's owned by them. And they are much more likely to embrace it than if we're forcing it on them. And so when I when I go into my work as an agilist, that's the type of mindset that I try to bring uh, to this work of coaching teams is making it so that people feel at the end of the day that whatever was achieved, the changes that were made, they drove it because if they own it, they're much more likely to continue owning it. Yeah. I
0: think I had this thing in class where I asked students to do some research about topics and servant leadership is one of them. And I asked them to find an example and they often come back with, I mean, if you look it up, Lao Tzu is listed as one of the first examples of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is a weird thing. He's giving up all the credit and, everything. and I think if you're managing a team, if you're working as a scrum master, you know, with a team where you're working as a project manager, to me, that same thing applies. I always say, if yes. people wonder what the hell you're doing all day long, you're probably doing a good
1: job. I, I strongly agree with that. As long as, long um, as the work's getting done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as long as the work's getting done. Of course, I mean, you know, we enter these situations then where you have uh, sometimes leaders saying, you know, well, where is the coach? Um, we need to be, of course, effective in communicating of the work that we're doing to to help the teams, but a healthy team speaks for itself.
0: Yeah. So, so can, we, can we walk through two examples, like maybe one, like a quick example of how you might create this conversation with somebody who is a smoker? And then maybe we can talk about how you might create this conversation with the team or
1: with an individual on a team. Yeah, uh, abso- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, would it be okay with you if I I just briefly talked about the change process and why I think it's important that I think organizations embrace it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so you know, I think change is uh, what what I was taught when I was going for this training is that change is a never ending process. Uh, it's a process. It's not an event. It's not something that happens overnight. And it's interesting because organizations and teams their abilities to adapt to change. More quickly is part of what is making companies more successful in the marketplace as it moves faster and faster, who can maneuver the other more efficiently. Um, But one of the things that I hear often uh, as I've worked in organizations is, you know, things move so fast nowadays and it's like this sort of common outcry. Um, But you know, organizations and people are not a whole lot better at maneuvering change now than they were 100 years ago, uh, even though we have higher stakes. So like the average age of an S&P 500 company is under 20 years, whereas, you know, it used to be 60 years in the 1950s. So our, our stakes are higher, um, and yet change continues to be this extremely difficult thing to create. And companies and individuals often fight inevitability Um, This the change is just going to happen. It's this one thing that's always constant to the point of extinction. And it's obviously not just companies, um, but I think it's it's worth pointing out that companies are a collection of individuals. And so uh, when we're trying to get people to shift their habits, um, it's important to recognize that it's it's a significantly complex endeavor because you can't just walk up to people and say, do this thing and and they'll do it. That's just, it's not the way that it works. And so we have to, as agilists, as behavioralists, we have to embrace that complexity and get creative with how we tackle uh, the change process, especially in complex systems, such as organizations that are made up of a lot of people. And that's why I think uh, motivational interviewing comes in as a framework for provoking sustainable change.
0: Why do you, if we've been dealing with this problem for so long, why do we, why are we still so bad at it? I mean, why is it just like, I know there's different phases it goes through, but it seems like in the last year and a half in the agile space, there's a a renewed focus on organizational change and the need to study change
1: management and things like that. Like, why have we not sorted this yet? That's a good question. Uh, You know, I think if we look at McGregor Burns' work in the 1950s, Theory X and Theory Y, he was talking about autonomous teams, empowered individuals. He was talking about things that showed up later in the Agile Manifesto back in 1956, 57, uh, and yet we still see organizations struggling to embrace these types of principles so I think just like that conversation about why is it so hard for a smoker to quit smoking even though they know it's bad, why is it so difficult for organizations to shift uh, to make these changes? I think It's because we get entrenched and we almost get addicted to the status quo, um, in a sense, where we have these habits, these habits of how we work become almost like an addiction that we can't shake. Uh, and... It's change is scary. It's a scary thing. But um, you know, the devil you know is better than the angel you don't. That was something that my, one of my behavioral professors always used to say to us, and it's really stuck with me for many years. And I find that to be very true. People are more willing to embrace um, standing on the deck of a sinking cruise liner than they are trying out the uh, the lifeboat. Or, the, yeah, you know the lifeboat because it's a it's a new ship and it's strange.
0: So well, well, can I can I.
1: Throw something in here to
0: see yeah. if it's if it resonates. So you brought up McGregor and that guy, it's like, I feel like sometimes like that that whole thing was created just to screw with me. Every time I start <laughs> anything, thing, I'm like, I'm gonna be why. I'm gonna be totally why. And then like five <laughs> minutes into it, I'm like, okay, this is why we come to work on time. Like it always ends up in that there's some like totally stupid thing that I take for granted that people understand. And then I I, I want to be why. And it's like the thing in The Godfather. Like every time I try to get out, they pull me back pull in. Me back in. Um, so I I sort of feel like with what you were just saying, m- maybe it's change. But maybe the change is I'm just so – it's like a startle response. I'm so quick to see that. Like I, I catch it, and that's what I lock into. And maybe if I let those things go, if I could teach myself to ease up a little bit. But I'm just so – twitchy about it. I don't know.
1: Well, I I I I think that's, I think that's fair. I think some of this is about awareness and acceptance. And I know it can sound like a cop-out, but it's just a reality. We can't change everything. And there are some things about ourselves that are not going to shift. There are instincts that we have. There are learned behaviors that have been there through most of our lives at work ethics, a way that we believe that work should be done or how humans should behave when, when in relationship with one another. And you know what, we may not be able to shake some of those things, or we may not even want to shake some of those things deep down. The same way that
0: everyone in Philadelphia believes the Eagles are going to win every year. Exactly. I mean, you know, until, until the day, end of September.
1: <laughs> until the, yeah, when the truth becomes <laughs> apparent. Um, I say that as a Philadelphian, so all love to the 215. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's a reality that people, we cling to our delusions, uh, even if there's a tremendous amount of evidence pointing to um, the opposite we still will stick with this, this mindset and this behavior, these mental models that really get ingrained in us. But yeah, it takes a tremendous amount of awareness and work. And it sounds like you do, you are aware of it. And so you, you own it. And I would imagine that, um, and maybe I'm making a leap here, but you don't necessarily you know, start yelling at, at that person. You, know, you need to be on time, um, but rather you recognize that this is a value you have and it's bugging you. You want to have a conversation with them about it, but you then try to figure out a really effective way to do it. I
0: think for me, it's more like, and I don't know if this goes to maybe the opposite side of change fatigue, but um, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be theory X. So when it happens, I'm just like, Oh God. Like, it's just like one more time. I have to go back to that same story and like, let's, okay, let's do the thing. And and I, and I'm trying to, it's like part of me has changed, but I'm waiting for the rest,
1: Rest of the whatever to catch up. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I think you you made a great statement there. Uh, change fatigue. Yeah. Um, I also think that you know a big a big part of motivational interviewing is recognizing that we have inside of us as practitioners something called the writing reflex the reflex to correct and inform and tell people what they should be doing and how they should be acting. And that is even the most skilled practitioners in behavioral science experience this. Um, and so it's not something that you can really escape. You can just own it and be aware of it, uh, and, and work around it as much as possible. So that's a, that's a thing that we own in motivational interviewing is that. Is we have that measurable? Reflex. So
0: say more. It was okay. So I have been asking people this question for a year and a half, and I've asked everybody I can think of who focuses on change. But I feel like, in the same way that a team has a whip limit, I feel like there's a change limit in an organization. Like there is, and I've never. And you said writing reflex when we talked last weekend, and I didn't catch it. But um, I feel like there's got to be a way. You can measure and see. Okay, this is the thing. This is the straw that's going to snap the back of the camel, and everything's going to flip back, and they're going to go full waterfall again because it was just too much at once. That's I that's th- what you're talking about, right?
1: Well, what I'm, what I'm no, not exactly. But you're hitting okay. on another really great point. So the writing reflex is this desire, this innate desire in us to f- try to fix other people and try to tell okay. them what they need I'm to do. Okay. To write them, but there. I was thinking of know, it like returning to its natural state. Well, in a sense, there there is that built into organizations, right? Because organizations are complex living systems, okay. uh, in that they are made up of many parts. They cannot be dissected into their their individual parts and still be working, um, but they have these living immune systems that when you start to inject change into the system that status quo addiction, that immune system begins to, to fight. And the more change you try to push into that system, the more that immune system pushes back. And yeah. so part of why I think MI is such an elegant solution, just like writing elegant code, is because it's the you're maximizing the work not done, just like you're maximizing the code not written. Um, you, you're working to try to... in pull change out of that system by igniting the natural mechanisms that are already there, rather than sort of asserting yourself on top of that system, because it will fight back in response to what it sees as overt coercive action. So okay. yes, to your point, absolutely. Uh, organizations, companies, systems, people, they will push back, they will fight back. And at some, a certain point, they will eject us from their ecosystem if they think we are a big enough threat. So motivational interviewing creates sort of a safer mechanism for sparking some of these smaller changes by doing it in a way that's less forceful and is more sustainable over time. Okay. So an example would be? Yeah. um, So the reason why I, I I think that this thing, this has been so effective in this space uh, is because it was you know was created by these addiction specialists who were studying people that were really um, struggling to make change and in the 70s when this thing was made, uh, the prevailing approach was to come in and start yelling and intimidating and coercing people to make these shifts and it was you know you're not Good enough. You're going to lose your family if you don't stop drinking. You're going to uh, have lung cancer if you don't stop smoking. And people would inevitably shut down. They would not come back for treatment. They would find ways to get out of these sessions. And so these two doctors, Dr. William Miller and Dr. Stephen Molnick, realized this stuff doesn't work. Uh, we're getting ejected from the system. People are ejecting us from their lives. They're ejecting this treatment. Uh, we need to find the underlying motivations for why they want change, their desire to change, their ability to change, their reason for change, their need for change. And, well, and if
0: that Clockwork Orange approach works for people, then it's sort of the question of did you really create change or did you just burn them burn them down somehow? Like my mom, when she was quitting smoking, went to some group where they would make them sit in chairs Mm. And chain smoke, but they weren't allowed to touch the cigarette, so they had to put it in their mouth and like just smoke it all the way down with the smoke and the ash, and then put another one in and just do it until they felt sick. Yeah, which is not like aversion therapy. Yeah, but it's not going to make them not want to smoke. It's it's like no,
1: you're just putting
0: more nicotine into them. Yeah, but to the point where they're sick. So it's this like a version thing like very clockwork orange and that's not going to make them want to be different
1: they just no. it's it's almost like with with forced agile uh you know people start to hate the idea um, of this thing rather than truly getting to know and understand what the spirit is and the point behind it and so i i would liken that experience to someone coming in and saying you know we're going to do agile whether you like it or not get ready for your forced scrum sessions. Everybody stand up. You're going to stand up against the wall until you can't stand anymore. Um, that doesn't work. No one's going to embrace that. They're going to spit that out or they're going to do it until no one's looking and then they're going to stop. And so, you know, we're going for the, uh, it's not covert. It's a very open approach. We're being very clear with people. So an example might be, um, you know, this textbook definition of MI is it's a collaborative conversation to strengthen a person's own motivation for and commitment to change. And it's both a set of principles and a framework of techniques. And, you know, the cornerstones of this would be starting with open-ended questions, uh, using affirmations, reflections, summarizing, and informing. Those are the, the five main uh, tools, techniques that we use in this practice as we walk people through. Can you say them again? Yeah, when we're walking people through motivational interviewing, this these, uh, continuum for change, we're using five main behavioral techniques to sort of walk them through that continuum of change. And they are open-ended questions, okay. affirmations, reflections, summarizing, and informing. And uh, I'll describe what those might look like in uh, in an Agile setting. Um, I'll t- actually, I'll tell you a story. I think the story would better, be- better illustrate uh, this experience. So I was sitting down, I was speaking with a CIO about their technology stack at a former organization, and I was sharing with them that many of the developers that I had been working with on team, their teams felt like the innovation was stalling and that technical debt was really piling up. And, you know, their response back to me, I I asked them what their thoughts were. I said, so, you know, what are your thoughts about this perspective that a lot of your dev teams have? Uh, How do you think we could tackle this issue? And they said, well, we don't, we have to develop new features. We don't really have time to be focusing on technical debt right now. And, you know, I was, I was taken aback because I, I expected him uh, as a CIO to be advocating for what Mark Schwartz from the seat at the table would call polishing the hairball or sort of boosting the health of the infrastructure. And it seemed like he really wasn't interested in that. Um, and so I shared some anecdotes. Uh, I tried to affirm, um, you know, with this person, uh, like, you know, affirmations being, you know, I, well, I've seen some really great innovation coming out of your team's Um, you know, you, you have empowered some really great things to occur. How can we keep this going? And what became very apparent was that, you know, they weren't going to budge on this topic. So instead of arguing my case, instead of saying, you know, if you don't clean up technical debt, this is what's going to happen. If you don't listen to the developers, people are going to get burned out. They're going to stop wanting to work here. Um, I just said, you know, what do you think will happen if we just let our technical debt pile up? another open-ended question. Uh, and he replied back, you know, it's, well, uh, it's probably going to slow us down. And I guess it'll hurt our ability to recruit top talent. And so this time I used a reflection. Instead of trying to quote uh, anecdotes and stories and statistics, I just reflected back to him what he said. He said, so on one hand, you feel that we need to keep moving on developing features and getting out new products, even if it means technical debt and architectural cleanup kind of take a backseat. But on the other hand, if we do this, it's going to hurt our ability to recruit talent, and eventually it's going to slow us down. It's going to slow down our feature development. And I just let that sit with him. Um, I thanked him for his time because it was clear that he wasn't ready to make a shift. He wasn't ready to make a shift in his thinking, uh and I, no amount of um cajoling or forcing or storytelling was going to shift his mindset at that time because i don't know what his underlying motivations were for for pushing back against uh this concept and two and a half months went by uh and so i decided to leverage the power of the group um the people that he had uh, a lot of respect for people who had some more authority to speak on this topic in his eyes than i did which were his technical leads So during a gathering of the tech leads that I was facilitating, um, he was present. And I asked what their number one obstacle was to moving forward on some of their top innovative ideas that they were brainstorming and and starting to work on. And unanimously, they all said at the same time, time, we need more time and organizational backing to develop these things out so that uh, ultimately we can drive this, this forward. Otherwise, we're going to really suffer as an organization. And it was nothing that I hadn't already said to him. But hearing it reflected back to him from people that uh, he really trusted and respected, um, he then had to respond. And so he, in the moment, recognizing that his tech leads, this was really, really important to them on a very visceral level. uh, He very eloquently spoke about that they would be launching an effort to address this technical debt issue. And he, he engaged in what is known in motivational interviewing as change talk. He started making a commitment to change in a public forum. Um, and what all the research shows us is that the more people engage in t- change talk, the more likely they are to actually put some plans into action. Uh, and so the very next day, emails were flying back and forth. uh, meetings were set, mechanisms started to get put in place for the tech leads and their teams to address this issue from across the tech stack. We started to prioritize some of these stories in our backlog. I mean, it was incredible. And ultimately what what really drove this was him committing to and planning the change and his change talk in front of his respected colleagues and peers. Um, And so you know, that was a situation where no matter what statistics I had, it wasn't going to change his mind. But this simple moment of making commitment in front of people that he respected made all the difference. Uh, and so that's an example of how this process might play out in a real time situation. Okay. So I want to ask a couple
0: questions about this because, and this is something I think would pertain to somebody, whether they're a PM or a scrum master, somebody on a scrum team or an agile team. Um, You know the answer to this question. He's just not ready to hear the question or not ready to answer the question, but you already know. And how do you talk yourself down off the ledge of like, dude, it's right here. Here's the answer. Look at this. And right in front of you is the answer. Just acknowledge it. Because there's got
1: to be some part of you that
0: wants to just do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's every fiber of my being as <laughs> as an agile, um, and a systems thinker. Sure, you know sure, the answer. Sure. Just give it to him. But I, you know, I had done that, and people, you know, from the conversations I'd had with these tech leads, people had been doing that in bits and pieces over a period of months to years, and it wasn't making a change um, because they were forcefully coming to him and saying, "You need to do this," and when people have that experience, they often, by just nature, they push back. Just like when we tell the smoker, you need to quit smoking, you need to be healthier. They push back, even though they know it's bad posse. for them. <laughs> I mean, it's about, I think, awareness and, and owning that writing reflex, that reflex that we have that says, tell, tell them what to do, that you're wasting time. And yeah, there are, you know what, there are, there are definitely moments when we have built rapport, we have engaged, and we've built enough social capital that we can say to somebody, hey, this is what I'm observing. Um, and that's when the informing part of motivational interviewing comes in. When you can do, you've built enough rapport with people, you have used some reflection, you have used summarizing. you have kind of opened them up. And then you can say, look, this is what I'm observing as a coach. I'm seeing that we're not you know, uh, in, investing in our technical debt cleanup. These are the ways in which we're suffering, and that person's ready to hear it, and then they'll, they'll take it on. And that, that means they were already in a place of change, a readiness to change um, that was further down the line than the person when you approach them and you say, hey, we have this issue with technical debt, and they say, we don't have time for that. And so it's, it's about uh, assessing where people are in this process of change and kind of like catching yourself. Uh, even though you really want to say, Hey, we don't have time to screw around with this. This is, you know, survival of our organization. Um, But sometimes doing that pushes them further into the hole of not wanting to change. And so we kind of, we act strategically, we buy our time and we find a different, more creative mechanism. And I think um, certainly that's, that's what really great servant leaders do. And that's what we do as, as Agilists all the time. We find creative ways uh, to create change and, we are as creative as possible to guide people through their path and their process and sort of provoking systems and then leveraging those disturbances in the force, if you will.
0: Well, how much of this is about, this is something that struck me a few minutes ago when you were talking about it. How much of this do you think is simply giving them freedom of choice? Because if I tell you, you have to do agile, you might, like you said, go along with it until I leave. But if it, if you get, to make the choice, you're given that freedom. It's your decision whether to, you know, do whatever. Um, is that a significant aspect of it, or am I
1: just kind of locking in on that and missing the point of it? No. I think, you know, why, why do we put so much emphasis on autonomy as being an important part of a healthy work life, a healthy, a healthy life in general, when people feel like they have choice and they have some level of empowerment to make those Choices for themselves, people are happier. They burn out less. They're more productive in the workplace. Better home lives. Um, they're much more willing to embrace these shifts when people feel like it was their own personal choice rather than it was rather than when it was forced upon them. So, absolutely, having the choice to choose uh, to make change is much more effective than someone feeling like they're being forced into okay. something.
0: So, when you're working with this kind of approach, is there a certain way that you have to form the
1: questions or present the questions? Or? I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I think you know, in at least in motivational interviewing, um, they they teach you that you want to walk people through a couple of. Of stages. There's four of them, uh, and you know the way in which you walk people through those stages really depends on each person's style. But the first thing that you want to do is you want to engage people. You want to build rapport with them, um, such that you know the teams or individuals where stakeholders are open to talking with you about whatever their obstacles are. Um, and they may not be ready to embrace some planning around that, but they're at least open to having a conversation with you about whatever it is you're, you're bringing to them. And as we ask questions, we ask these open-ended questions that can't be answered with a yes or a no. Um, these questions are designed to elicit more details, to bring out opportunities to explore with people. Uh, and as we're, we're getting through that stage where we're identifying some things. It's called the next stage is focusing. And in the focusing stage, we're working to help people hone in on what exactly it is that is their impediment. And if we've built rapport during the engaging phase, enough of it, we might be able to unearth some really powerful things during a retrospective, for example, or a one-on-one coaching session. And then we can utilize those discoveries as, as focusing points and almost begin to make uh, a backlog um, or for the team or for the, with that individual of things that we want to collaboratively shift together that we want to kind of tackle. Okay. And, you know, as we're working through that stage of focusing in on perhaps we, you know, tech debt, we want to reduce tech debt. Um, we might then uh, start to evoke with, with that group of people. Maybe it's one of the teams we're working with. Maybe it's a group of stakeholders we might, we want to bring out of them their natural motivation and their ability to achieve that thing. And so, you know, it's that getting the change talk to come out. Um, and that might be the affirmations. And so I might be saying to a group of people, um, you know, look, I know, uh, that this is something that you want to tackle. I've seen you tackle some tremendously complex challenges in the past and be really successful. And I'm, I'm affirming them in in, uh, their ability to do this. Uh, And then I might throw a reflection in there after that affirmation. And if I'm hearing you correctly, um, it sounds that, you know, it sounds like you're nervous to take some of this stuff on and, and you feel like you need some more organizational support. Uh, And you're afraid that if you try to dive into this stuff, it's going to, it's going to hurt your standing in the organization because we've been avoiding tackling tech debt. Uh, is that is that accurate? Does that feel right to you? And you know that that starts to provide some room for us to have this conversation. So what we're what we're doing in this process is um, we're not directing people to an answer. We're not just following people, but we're sort of guiding people. We're acting almost as like a sherpa uh, in a sense. And I think of sherpas as people that. Climb the mountain with you. They don't necessarily tell you what to do, but perhaps when you're in danger and you're coming to them for assistance, they're there to help. Um, but you're not. They're not standing next to you on the mountain saying, "Oh, you tied that knot wrong." Oh, you uh, need to fix your your belay rope. Uh, it's it's not right. Oh, that that was the wrong way to walk up the mountain. They're just there in the journey with you until you need them. And you know, part of creating change, it's that same type of mentality and spirit that really helps create more sustainable change so it's that mix of technique uh and approach and sort of principles and spirit that you apply to it that creates a more sustainable change so i want to does that does that speak to your question i feel like i might no no it does i think
0: i'm I'm sort of getting that finding there's not a formula for how you dig down on this stuff you just are looking for options but the thing that i wanted to to point out that you just said, which I've heard other coaches say is you have to have them come to you, not you just go and push stuff at them. Like yes. it's gotta be a pull. I think that's an important aspect of making this stuff work. Uh, very, very
1: much so. Uh, and and it's a it's a big part of this, this process of, of people, again, identifying their own reasons why they want something and then they would reach out for assistance. And then that's when we might take the opportunity to, again, ask them some questions. What do you think? What have you done in the past that's been successful as a team? What have you seen other teams do that work? And so we keep going back and reminding ourselves that, yeah, we have some really great knowledge and there are times where we're going to pull that out if a team is really struggling and they're really stuck. But what we don't want to do is always be handing them the answer because we don't want to teach a sense of learned helplessness, where people are constantly looking to someone outside of the team for a solution to their problems. We really want to be empowering them to solve their own problems. And it's part of why I love motivational interviewing. And you'll probably hear me say that a number of times in this conversation, but it's such a powerful tool because it teaches people to be empowered because they're finding solutions to their own obstacles. And you have a set of techniques to set them up to do that. And it really is that uh, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summarizing, and then every once in a while, we're informing people of our observations. And we may, if they're really stuck, throw them some bones and some ideas, and we might spark in them a different way of thinking and, and maybe do some activities and some games. Uh, but what we, what we really want is to see them generate as much as possible.
0: Okay. So, because they're part of this, they're ideally going to be more invested in it. They'll be making those choices. What if the interviewing process, or how, I guess, have you seen this, where you ask them the questions and they say yes to all the things that would lead them down the path, and then you get to the end of the questions and they're like, "Yep, everything you said is totally great," but you know, I'm I'm just going to sit over here anyway, because sometimes it's like they just want a cheeseburger and they don't want the work that it's going to require to
1: get the thing that they say they want more yeah uh, i i yeah, absolutely um we certainly i saw that as in my career as a human you know human behavioral specialist watching people go through this where they you know I want to change I want to change we walk down the path and I say, you know what i'm actually okay um and then as an agileist you know applying some of these same behavioral principles working with teams it's you know the processes are, are certainly not uh, they're there to be helpful but it's doing agile is not the same as as being agile right and so what we want to do is really try to bring out that that autonomy and that empowerment and and part of that is acknowledging sometimes when people are not at a place to do the work because they're burned out or they maybe are maybe it's no longer the organization for them to be at maybe they should be at a different organization or this this job is just not uh, the right fit and so you know we might be just surfacing for them that truth. It's not maybe necessarily about this transformational shift to like, I'm now, you know, I was this old school traditional wave. I need tons and tons of documentation before I start anything. And I don't want to do agile and I don't really want to work on a team. I just want to be, leave me alone to do my my uh, coding and I'm dev done type of thing To All of a sudden they're this super, um, you know, T-skilled, Uh, agile, superhero, it's not necessarily like that. Sometimes a win is just getting a person to acknowledge, hey, this is not right for me, and I think that I'm pretty burned out and maybe I need to move on. And that can be just as good for the health of a team or the health of an organization. Now, if I
0: I was working with a really high-performing, like truly agile team, I would expect people would say, like, yeah, this isn't working for me. Yeah, I don't want to do that. But most teams,
1: they just kind of go along with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's, you know, part of our job is having that awareness to see when people are just going along with something and they're playing along um, and that comes out. You know, when we're engaging with customers or we're not engaging with customers, when we're doing retros just to go through the motions, yeah. when people aren't being honest with each other about what's going on, when a problem is just very clear for the whole team, but nobody wants to own it, no one wants to speak about it. And it might be because they don't feel safe, it might be because it's not been effective for them to do so. And or it might be that, you know, they're in a space where um, they just, they don't want to okay. do the work around it and that's okay. Um, you know, sometimes we just need to help them surface that. And we might make that observation. That might be a time when we do say, look, this is what I'm observing. Am I off base? You know, help, help me understand what I'm seeing here. And then they might give you some information. And then again, that's when you, you kick into that continuum mode of helping people walk through those stages, um, uh, of, of, of uh, building rapport, of focusing in, of evoking and planning um, of how they might move forward. And you try to move them further along on these stages so that they're in a space where they can start to have honest conversations and they can start to be agile rather than just do agile. Um, but a change is a process. It's not an event as I talked about earlier. So this this might happen over a period of time. Uh, but yeah, a big a portion of our job is, no, is seeing when people are are kind of faking it or just doing it because they were told they have to and then uncovering why that's going on and perhaps helping them yeah. move through that. Okay. So
0: let's say that somebody wants to kind of dig into this more. I've, I've got two questions. The first one, because I'm assuming it's probably quicker, is where do they go to learn more? But the second one is, how, how long does it take you to get good at this and how do you go through that process?
1: Well, I think for everyone, it's okay. different. Uh, for, for me, certainly, I had training as I became a behavioralist, uh, and I found that this really was a powerful tool and for my work, so I continued to seek out more and more information about motivational interviewing, but it is out there in many forms, either through the Motivational Interviewing um, Society, through trainings. Uh, through reading material online. If you just Google motivational interviewing, you will find a cache of incredible information that will walk you through learning this process. And then you can start to practice it anywhere. You can practice it okay. at home. Uh, I use it as much at home as I do in my work. Um, and that that definitely took a while to get to that place. Uh, but it it kind of started to become who I am. The more I use this The more I applied these techniques in my work life, the more I started applying them at home, and vice versa. And so, I would recommend anyone who's interested um, to to look out there for what is available on motivational interviewing, and you'll find some really incredible material. And I'll include a couple links at the bottom in the show notes as well. If there's there's
0: specific places that you recommend, Um,
1: yeah, the MI the Motivational Interviewing Three Handbook recently came out. Um, You know, it, it like uh, like agile practice they incrementally improve their their work as well they've you know they've been around for over 50 years but they continue to try to change um and evolve how they do their work uh based on the research in their okay. field so um certainly i recommend to anyone to look this stuff up and, and see what's evolved in the system because it continues to grow and get okay better. cool um thank you so i got i got one more kind of line of questioning
0: for you um And this one might be shorter. So one of the things that I've noticed as we've been talking is the tone, the quality of your voice, the rate of speech, everything about the way that you communicate verbally, it's very calm. It's very soothing. It's very even. Um, I don't know a lot of people that talk like that. And and I'll give you a contrast. So a lot of the folks I know that have studied nonviolent communication, um, not, not all but a lot of them have kind of integrated into their lives and, and everything they say sounds like they're teaching a yoga class. (laughs) Would you be willing to stop doing that stupid thing? Because when you do it, it makes me feel really angry inside. And I want to smash kittens. And I'd like to not. um, So did you, is this how, is that how you've always talked or do you talk
1: the way that you talk now? Is that something you had to learn and practice? Um, you know, I try to be as authentic as possible in the way I engage with okay. people. Uh, certainly when I'm at work, I'm a bit different than I am at home, although I do use these types of skills at home to maintain. We're going to talk I about that in a second, second too. Then, yep. Um, uh, but, you know, yeah, this was something that I had to learn in practice. I, I never wanted to be one of those people where, you know, they sound like the guru and uh, it tries. And they go outside and they just like, don't want to necessarily say that. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're out there. You know, you see them when they're outside off the podium. They're not being saved yeah. on stage and they're they're cursing up a storm and they're screaming at the waiter because they got their water order yeah. wrong. Um, no, I mean, I, I try to live as integrated a life as possible. And part of that was just as I learned these skills and these techniques, um, I found that for me to be you know, really uh, a solid servant leader and to be authentic and true to people as I did this work, part of it was adopting this stuff. And it happened through practice. I just I practiced these things In my work life, my home life, and it started to become how I spoke and it became natural, but it certainly did not feel that way at first. And that's something that we always tell people when we're teaching, um, this, this, these skill sets to them is that it will not feel natural at first. Uh, you will want to try to correct people. You will you will dive into that writing reflex. You will uh get angry, you will get frustrated, your voice will raise, um, you will get animated and excited, and that's okay to just be human. Like we're that's yeah. what we are. Uh but we also recognize that there is a certain way that a lot of people it's it's more effective for them to hear information a certain way because they're much more likely to take it in. And so yeah, I, I had to learn. And practice how to sort of modulate my voice, my body language. um, And it came over a period of time. But when I was much younger, uh, I was deathly afraid of speaking in front of people like four or five people, six people, I would have a panic (laughs) attack. Um, And no, uh, seriously, and uh, it's an incredible thing. Um, You know, my mom still brings it up to this day. Uh, and I remember a huge, like, watershed moment for me was I got up on stage uh, and I was speaking at, at a Department of State-sponsored event, and there was like 600 people there from 27 different countries. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, you know, as I was about to give my talk, uh, like, you would never have been able to do this. Oh, even that's you cool! You were like, not even able to get in front of yeah. 10 people. And so it was a huge celebratory moment that I was able to get up there and not pass yeah. out um uh you know and, and like throw up in front of all these people uh, but yeah it took practice and it took effort but over conscious, time, conscious this, effort this conscious
0: choice to put yourself
1: in yeah, that situation con- conscious, con- constantly saying you know how are you being interpreted by the people around you how is your message being taken in? and if your message is not being received well you have to take a look at how you're delivering yeah. that message Uh, because it really is uh, about how we put ourselves out there in the world. Um, And I would also say, and this is a small plug for martial arts, that uh, as I learned and trained in martial arts growing up, that also impacted my self-awareness and my self-control. And so my practice of behavioral science and agility is also tied in a little bit with my practice of martial arts, um, and that calm, and that discipline. And so all those things kind of wrap together, create this ball of who I am that I bring to the workplace and I bring to my relationships. So what martial art? I've practiced a bunch over the years. Shotokan, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, American-style wow. boxing, uh, Krav Maga, a bunch of different okay. things. Um, some, some Uh So different martial arts that have just inspired me to think about how to de escalate, how to talk to people in a way that makes them feel at peace or at ease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I lived in Philly for a large portion of my life, and you know, you don't just roll up on people and start getting in their face unless you want yeah. to get, popped <laughs> they'll or, get or, right back uh, in yours. Yeah. You know, yeah, they'll get right back in yours. So, um, you know, you, you, it's a survival mechanism, it's a healthy relationship mechanism. Uh, my wife really appreciates it when we're, when we're engaging. Um, and you know, I find that in the workplace, uh, dev team stakeholders, they're much more willing to listen to what I have to say when I come at them from a reasoned place. than if I'm sort of, you know, screaming and and pointing at statistics on a board and waving my hands wildly in the air and saying, we have to change or we're all going to explode. One of the things about the martial arts stuff that
0: I think is cool is, is there's different things that different aspects of different ones. And I'm not familiar with most of the ones that you talked about, but like in Aikido, the whole practice of protect the person you're with, like that's your first responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Things like that, I think are, I wish they were more a part of the conversations that we have. Like if your first responsibility was to care for and protect your client, as opposed to just like getting over on them or getting them to do what you wanted them to do, I think the world will be a much better place. Um, but the thing that I wanted to ask you about, especially as it's sort of because you're the king of segues into the martial arts thing, um, parallel to that, I am a huge fan of the art of war and uh, discovered that wow. book when I was a teenager. And it is the, the book that I, book. guides almost everything that I do. And I've got like 50 different versions of it. And I used to teach classes and how to use it. And I would always tell people like, here's all these amazing tools and you can use these in any project situation to deal with any kind of interaction of like you talked about two people interacting. I always explain it like every interaction changes the relationship. If I ask you the weather, I'm giving you information that I don't know the weather or I'm asking you a weird question. You have things we're negotiating for who's going to get what and the relationship's different at the end of it. Practice this stuff at work. It's not going to go well in the beginning. You're going to be sloppy. You're going to be clumsy. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to look awkward. Everybody's going to know what you're, you know what you're trying to do and that you're bad at it, but don't ever do it at home because if you try this stuff with Hmm. your spouse, you are screwed.
1: That was my own personal experience. Yeah. Well, I I think that's a fair warning. Um, You know, one of the things that has been helpful for me uh, is that we have some working agreement ground rules. In fact, we have a Kanban board on the fridge, and we have a posted working agreement in our house. So I'd admit that we're a little bit different, maybe, than the average couple. Um, It's fair to say. But... Uh, this was something, these these types of skills, these conversations, conflict transformation is something that I, I was a trainer for for yeah. 10 years. Um, and you know I, I taught a lot of people to utilize these things in their home environments so that they could be less burned out when they got to work, where they were in very high-stress work situations. And over the years, we had a lot of incredible feedback from people that it really impacted their relationships positively. And one of the things that I think made a big difference was that uh, just like in Agile, where you have the Prime directive, where we are, are stating to people, you know, this is the assumption that we're making that we're going into this with the best of intentions yeah. and our our, our our best foot forward. When we we have these conversations with our spouses and we go to use these tools, tell them what you're doing. Yeah, just own it. And to say, to Look, I don't want to. Fr- I don't. I don't, no, 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 no. I don't try to manipulate you because that's your. Yeah, if you're going to say that, then you're setting yourself up. Well, that's what trouble. I mean. Um, that's when the martial right, arts come out exactly. for sure, when you get you a, a, a karate chop to the face. <laughs> no, no. So, it's more about, um, and I say this with my teams and my groups. Look, what you you may hear me doing is I am I am uh, using a certain set of tools and skills because I want to show you respect. And I want to hear you in the way you deserve to be heard. Uh, it's going to maybe sound weird. It might be a little funky, but just just work with me here. And if it's really bugging you, let me know and I'll adjust and I'll, I'll shift it up because that's what we do, we adjust and we change. Um, but this is why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. This is why I'm reflecting. And this is why I'm asking you open-ended questions. And uh, yeah, at first people say like, you know, what is this Um, psychology, uh, babble stuff that you're doing. Uh, But once you lay down that you're usually when you lay down that you're doing it because you really want to hear that person and you really want to take in what they're saying and you want to acknowledge them, uh, nine times out of 10, people are at least open to hear what you have to say and what you're doing because they get that you're coming from the right place. And if that person is not interested in that, that you're trying to hear them and you want to be compassionate for them and you want to be a good team member or a good spouse or what have you, um, then you might want to reevaluate that relationship and take a look at how healthy that relationship is. So I always find that that's, it's an okay thing to do as long as you let people know what you're doing and it's above board. It's not, I think, I think the, the
0: fact that you, you call it out up front is great because it's you being transparent and vulnerable and saying, look, I'm trying to get better. And this isn't going to be awkward a little bit in the beginning. I think that's really great. And for me, I always find that, um, if I know that somebody is like selling me or social engineering me like if, if I know that's what's going on, my favorite is when I can see it happening and I let it happen and I'm just like that was awesome like somebody <laughs> totally gets me to do something I didn't think I was going to do and I can see the craft in it like that because maybe they're not as finesse with it yet as they could eventually be but I like when I can watch the way that it the mechanics of it unfold um, if I trust the person and I respect the person I think that. If you can create that yeah. safe space, that's a
1: really cool thing. Absolutely, uh, I think that's a huge, a huge piece of this, and. Uh, it does. It does come back to that, especially when we're using things like motivational interviewing, which are really powerful tools for provoking change, or uh, the work that we use in non nonverbal, uh, nonviolent yeah. communication. You know, we we have to be authentic with people. We have to be transparent with our teams, or we're not being the fullest servant leaders that we can be. We're not. We're not being um, the best partners that we can be in relationship uh, because we're just we're stuck being afraid to be honest and transparent and who we are and authentic. And so if we can bring that to the table, I really believe our sort of inner Jedi and our change yeah. Jedi starts to emerge. Um, and in the modified words of Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi, this is the podcast you are looking for. These are the tools you are <laughs> looking for because they can make such a huge such a huge difference in your life and the way that you work with teams. So I wholeheartedly recommend that people check this stuff out uh, and give it a try. And yes, to your point, it will be awkward. It will that's feel okay. weird, um, but, yeah. but stick with it. Stick with it because that's okay because people just really want to cool. be heard. This was great, man. I
0: really appreciate you taking your time out for this. And I I just, I want to okay. call out, speaking of mechanics, your ability to segue and call back to the things we've been talking about is remarkable. So I, as somebody who does this slide, I'm you, grateful sir. to you for that because it made my job a lot easier.
1: Uh, Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you. I don't think you realize how much I appreciate this opportunity. Again, I I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but I've been a very large fan of your show for a while and you're a tremendous interviewer and coach. I've learned a a tremendous amount from your show. So getting the opportunity to do this podcast uh, is it's a it's a big deal. Thank you. Um, If the folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? well, there's a couple of different ways. I mean, one is, uh, through that scrum.life is my website. Okay. So they can, they can check me out that way. Um, or they can certainly reach out to me via email, uh, Zach at gmail.com, or they can find me on LinkedIn. All right, and I will, those are three easy I ways to get include a
0: hold of me. links to all those in the show notes.
1: See, this was great. Thank you very much for taking time out for this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to share this information.